Welcome to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Beth Binchik, Director of Policy and Program at ACS. Before we dive into today's episode, we have a request for all our listeners. We're preparing our upcoming episode on the Supreme Court's new term and want to help answer your questions about it. If you have questions about our highest court or about upcoming cases in the new term, email us at podcast at acslaw.org. We'll try to answer as many questions as we can on our SCOTUS preview episode. Again, our email is podcast at acslaw.org. In what many are calling a hot labor summer, we've seen high-profile strikes and renewed energy in the labor movement. Hundreds of thousands of workers have already been involved in strikes this year, and public approval of labor unions is at its highest point since 1965. Here to help us understand what is behind this hot labor summer is Diana Reddy, Assistant Professor at the UC Berkeley School of Law. Diana's research focuses on work as an institution and its relationship to law. Her scholarship and writing has been published in the Yale Law Journal, Emory Law Journal, and the Law and Political Economy blog. Diana, welcome to Broken Law. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. I'm delighted to be here. According to a Gallup poll, 71% of Americans approved of labor unions in 2022, and Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations reports that 240 strikes involving more than 320,000 workers have occurred so far this year. What's driving these trends? That is the question. It's one of the questions that I try to address in some of my research. I, I think it's complicated. In terms of public support for labor unions, that actually is one of the things that I have tried to empirically study because it's something that's been, the change has been so real for those of us who've done work for the labor movement over this period. It's, it's, when I, when I went to go do my PhD, I'll say one of the things that I wanted to study was why there was a lack of public support for the labor movement. But as I was studying that, there was this really dramatic change. So I think there's a couple of things. I think Occupy was actually a really big moment. And that's what some of my research shows, that up until that point, we really didn't have a modern day language for talking about economic inequality. And there's also a lot of research that says that awareness of economic inequality results in increased support for labor unions because they are understood by the general public as a mechanism for reducing inequality. And in some of my research, it showed that talking about labor unions in terms of the 99% and the 1%, even as recently as 2019, was associated with increased support for labor unions. So I think Occupy was a really important moment, both kind of culturally, but then also politically. It kicked off a wave of social movement activism. The past decade, obviously, has been such an incredible moment of regular people saying, things aren't working. So from Occupy to Black Lives Matter to Me Too, I think there's been just an increased role for for contentious politics, as political scientists call it, in shaping discourse. And I think that has also partly resulted in in a slight political reformation um, for better and for worse. So I think the candidacy of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in the 2016 elections in different ways, but, you know, called more attention to labor issues, albeit in different ways. So I think we see a weakening of the kind of neoliberal consensus that dominated politics for so long. And then the pandemic. I, I think the pandemic, in a very material way, showed how important workers are and how much they risk, particularly low-wage 
workers of color, immigrant workers, you know, essential workers who were truly risking their lives to keep the, the country functioning. So I think that drove a real increase in, in support for, for labor unions. So that's on the one side, you know, why is public support so big? I guess the other part of the question is, is what's going on with workers themselves? And, you know, that's, that's also complicated. I think the pandemic was really important for workers too, in that you got to see in real time that work could change. And so much of, you know, research on, on social movements is about the like people's internal recognition that things could be different. And I think during the pandemic, again, for better and for worse, but work changed and the labor market changed. And so there were moments also of where it was very much a labor seller's market, as we would say. And so I think that experience of, of having power, being able to affect change is absolutely transformative. I think workers also understand that they have greater public support and that matters and that encourages them to, to be bold, to take risks. And, you know, I ultimately, I think things are hard. I mean, in so many industries, there are really significant material changes, environmental changes that are that are affecting the quality of their jobs, the quality of their lives. Folks are fed up and they they are increasingly realizing there are options, imperfect options, but options for kind of for for saying we want there to be a change. And the public support makes a big difference in and I think encouraging workers to to take that step. Yeah, I want to use some of the, you know, higher profile labor disputes that we've seen in the last few months to talk about some of those issues. So to kick that off, both the Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA are on strike. It's the first time that Hollywood has experienced a double strike in 63 years. What drove the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA to go on the strike? So I think they're a really good example of how changing material conditions are changing work lives and work quality. And in both of those instances, there's been there's been agitation over a long period. You know, what do we do about the move to streaming services? At this moment, what do we do about AI? And what's so interesting is that when there are these technological changes, the default rule is that the employer gets to decide how to respond to them. And so they they respond in their contracting and in their productions in ways that 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 maximize returns for the employer. And then in order for workers to have a say in it, they have to exercise their their right to bargain. And often, and, and this is the this is the fascinating. I don't know, double-edged sword of, of labor law, which is that it's incredibly empowering, right? It says workers should have a say in things that would otherwise be completely the employer's, you know, purview. It says that they can withhold their labor and still have a right to their jobs, but it also requires them to do that. It takes a lot to go on strike. And consistent with what I was saying earlier, for for a long time when there was low public support for labor unions and when there were really kind of strong examples of failed strikes and repressed strikes, unions weren't striking. Right now, it feels like a moment of possibility. And there are, you know, real material concerns that workers want to address. And so they're out there. Technology is also playing a big role in the United Auto Workers negotiations. The United Auto Workers Agreement covers close to 150,000 workers at Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. And it's set to expire on September 14th. So, a major concern is how the transition to electric vehicles could be used to undermine auto worker standards. How is that shift to electric vehicles affecting workers now? 
Yeah, it's it's an important example of, again, how the default of employer prerogative puts the onus on workers to have to do the work to maintain you know, good jobs and a good quality of life. So there are a number of issues with the transition to electric vehicles. One, of course, is is the massive amount of capital that it, it takes to create the new factories. And, you know, this has been a big issue with the Biden administration in that they're, the, the grants of money in order to encourage investment in electronic vehicles have not always come with what workers would say is a really necessary part of of a new economy. It's it's not just a it's it can't be a new economy that preserves the environment at the expense of the working people. And so I think the goal has always been, okay, let's invest in this new technology, but we're not we're not going to let corporations use that as an excuse to de-skill jobs or to make the jobs that exist worse, because that is not a win, right? That is not a progressive win. A progressive win is you know good jobs and green jobs. So there's a concern about where the funding comes from to to make these new capital investments. There's also a concern about new players, obviously, in the industry. Tesla, um, of course, is a really important supplier of a, a manufacturer of electronic vehicles. It's difficult to unionize new companies. So we can talk forever about why it's so hard to establish new unions that what's the you know the big three who are facing a strike. These are industries and corporations that have been organized forever or for a very long time. And so when you have new competitors enter the field, especially when they're staunchly anti-union, that means that it is difficult to organize a union. And then also they're able to essentially create a race to the bottom where if there's a, a leading co- company in the field that is not providing high quality jobs, it makes it harder for everyone else to make sure that those are high quality jobs. And it sounds like with the transition to electric vehicles, there's a concern that this race to the bottom might start to occur. I think a lot of the workers who are working on electric vehicles in the United States are employed by joint ventures. And so it's not just the big three who are involved in this. It's, you know, a joint venture with another company. And so, you know, how does that impact the ability of those places to become unionized? Well, a longstanding issue in labor law is who's the employer. And so uh, whenever you have more complicated organizational structures, it always both creates issues of, is this a successor employer? such that union contracts and or union recognition from the original company would transfer over to the new venture. It also creates issues of, you know, Right now, the NLRB is trying to decide, it is, well, it is in a consistent process of trying to refine what do we do when there are joint employers involved? Who are you bargaining with? Are you able to bargain with the person that actually has the power to set wages and control working conditions? So I think there's at least some good news on this front. The Altium Cells plant in Ohio is the first of these plants to be unionized. And as of August 24th, UAW reached a tentative agreement for 25% of raises for workers there. And UAW workers have overwhelmingly voted to authorize strikes if they don't reach deals with the big three by the time that their contracts expire. What do you think is driving that vote? Well, first of all, this is kind of how it goes, which is, uh, you know, the the two things that labor law does or they it, it authorizes collective bargaining. And it says that if collective bargaining is not effective, it can be backed up by the use of economic weapons. The workers economic weapon is the strike is the withholding of labor. So 
traditionally, if bargaining is not looking like it is going to be effective, you want to make it clear that bargaining, if it falls through, results in the use of economic weapons, the strike. So a strike vote is incredibly powerful. It shows the folks at the negotiating table, the employers, representatives who are doing the negotiating, that workers are serious. And it helps, you know, it's 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 the threat. It's the threat of what could happen if we don't reach an agreement. In law school, we're trained, right? What are the alternatives to a negotiated agreement? Here, an alternative to a negotiated agreement is a massive strike. And so, you know, that's that's that is an important part. You know, that's not separate from the negotiating process. That's an important part of the negotiating process to know to, to make it really clear what the alternatives are. And leadership kicked off negotiations with a member's handshake by going directly to the plant gates to shake hands with members and take their message back to the bargaining table. What do you make of that break from tradition? You know, it's a it's really symbolically meaningful. I think for those right now, we're in a potentially new era of of labor activism, and 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 I can talk about this more because you know. I think it's a turning point. I, I don't know that we're yet in a new era. But in long union dense industries, there was a criticism from within, you know, from within unions themselves that they're that uh, that unions had become business unions, right? Leaders not being responsive to actual members, leaders just trying to cut deals that that, you know, benefited them, that benefited perhaps longtime workers, but were not actually out there tackling the really difficult issues like new technologies, like like changing weather conditions, and that they and that in that way they were selling workers short. So I think this is a really big symbolic shift and and a, and a tactical shift because there is a change in terms of making across a lot of unions in making bargaining more accessible to members and making sure that they're doing a better job of getting members input and not necessarily saying, I mean, ultimately what makes unions powerful is that they have, you know, a a power structure. They're a majoritarian mechanism. There are elected leadership, you know, union agreements never make every single worker completely happy. You know, that's, that's just not how it works. But that said, doing the work on the ground, talking to workers, saying what is important to you, letting them be involved in the negotiation process. And, you know, when, when negotiators have to make compromises, making sure that they're explaining to the membership why this is a good trade-off to make can be hugely important in, in increasing member engagement and increasing satisfaction with what the union is doing. So I think this is both symbolically just as saying we're doing things different around here, but but it also reflects changing tactics within unions. Previously, the United Auto Workers has targeted one company for bargaining, then based contracts for the others off of that model. However, President Sean Fain said that the big three is our strike target, leaving companies wondering whether all three could be struck. How might this strategy affect negotiations? There's power in numbers. And, you know, unions have, there's an increasing push, I think, within the labor law world to make it easier to move from enterprise bargaining, which is bargaining with just one employer to sectoral bargaining, which is what they have in in, in Western Europe and, and other countries. You know, the, the biggest problem, I don't know the biggest, there are too many problems, but, you know, one of the, one of the limitations of our system is it a law that was encouraged that was that was partly developed to say that 
commerce should not be on the backs of, of of workers, right? That we should not be, the thing that makes us competitive should not be bad jobs, right? It should not be worker quality of life. We want there to be a, a baseline of good jobs. And so if we're going to be competitive as a company, we're going to do it in other ways. We're going to innovate. We're going to you know, cut costs in production, but we're not going to do it on the backs of workers. But when you have enterprise bargaining, it, it doesn't necessarily work that way. If only one company in an industry is unionized or only several companies are unionized, or if, again, they're all unionized, but they're engaged in different bargains, one of the things that makes companies more competitive is, you know, worse working conditions, is agreeing to saying, we're going to cut wages, we're going to cut, we're going to cut benefits. So I think the goal here is always to try to do things on a a sectoral or industry-wide basis. And so this is coming closer to that because the UAW has relationships with, with all of these, with all three of the companies. And, you know, again, the power of labor is power in numbers. So the the greater the coordination, usually the better the results. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. As we discuss so often on this podcast, our laws and legal systems impact all of us. By supporting ACS, you support Broken Law, our work to diversify the federal bench, and our advocacy for Supreme Court reform. You also become a member of our nationwide network. Learn more about ACS by visiting our website at acslaw.org. And now back to the conversation. In July, the Teamsters and UPS reached a tentative deal and avoided a strike. The Teamsters General President, Sean O'Brien, said this is the template for how workers should be paid and protected nationwide. Can you tell us what the new agreement between the Teamsters and UPS looks like? Yes, it's a really exciting agreement in part because it is trying to fix so much of what wrong over the past several decades. So in many industries, there's been decades of concessionary bargaining with a significant loss in quality of jobs. And so what's so important here is that the Teamsters are addressing the two-tier, two-tier salary structures. For folks who don't know, two-tier was a practice for a long time among many unions of saying that for existing employees, there would be one set of working conditions. For new employees, there would be another set of working conditions and you know, universally worse working conditions. And this was partly driven by, again, eras of you know, of really weak decades of, of weak labor power, of really low public support for unions. And, and and significant employer opposition empowered by weak labor laws. So unions, you know, for better or worse, they tried to get what they could, but that often meant sacrificing newer workers and in favor of existing workers with this, with, you know, and in, in fairness, I think with the sense of the entire economy is changing, right? For folks who've been doing this a long time, they're like, we, we can't, jobs are just going to be bad now. I, I, I think that was partly the view. Jobs are just going to be bad now. So we can at least protect the folks who expected to have good jobs. And, and you know, everyone else just accepts we live in a new world of bad jobs. And I think now with the renewed public support, with a renewed political emphasis, with, a, with renewed power, unions are saying, no, that was, that was a horrible strategy. It weakened solidarity. It made us seem irrelevant and we're not going to be irrelevant anymore. We are going to tackle issues. We are going to protect new workers. We are going to protect young workers. And we are going to deal squarely with 
the issues of a modern economy. So I, I think that was one of the really incredibly important wins there. Obviously, huge raises, dealing with part-time workers, and equipping vehicles with air conditioning. All new vehicles will have air conditioning, and older vehicles will have additional fans and additional ventilation put in. Yeah. And on the issue of air conditioning, it seems like that's increasingly becoming an issue for workers, both in unionized and non-unionized workplaces. This, you know, historic heat wave we've been experiencing is really driving more attention to the issue of protecting workers just from heat and the climate. Could you talk a little bit more about how that plays a role in, you know, both the law protecting workers from heat and negotiations? Yeah. So whenever you're talking about worker well-being, there's both the kind of across the board protections that exist for all workers, and then there's what they can bargain for. So the the, the standard protection for worker self and hate, worker safety and health is provided through OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Safety and Health Act, and administered by an administrative agency. They have limited capacity to enforce regulations. And right now, they don't have an effective mechanism for actually monitoring exposure to heat. But workers can do that through through their unions. And so, yes, it's true that a lot of increasingly workers are organizing in order to uh, address the realities of climate change. And, and, and I don't know, I think it's so poignant because for so long, climate change was you know, talked about as an issue for polar bears, which, you know, itself was incredibly important, but we weren't talking about what does climate change mean for regular people and particularly, you know, those of us with the least resources for for dealing with it. And so that it's really, you're seeing the nexus here of environmental issues and labor issues. Again, what do we do about the really, the increasing heat when workers are, you know, especially engaged in physical labor? UPS employees approved the new five-year agreement with 86.3% of Teamsters members voting for the contract, the highest vote for a contract in the history of the Teamsters at UPS. How do you think this agreement will affect UPS and the industry as a whole? It's, you know, I think the goal is that instead of a race to the bottom, we're going to have a race to the top. And, but that also has a lot to do with union strategy. And I think what the Teamsters have made clear here is that you know, they used the threat of Amazon, you know, getting all the delivery business if they if there was a strike, partly to help win this agreement. But they're not stopping there. They want to organize Amazon. And that's kind of, you know, the dream of of of, of how labor agreements work. And, and I think, you know, Sean O'Brien did a really good job of, of saying, like, he's not just we're not just concerned with the quality of jobs of our current members. We want to use our, our negotiating power, our, our, our organizational power to make that the standard for all workers. So what we win isn't just for us. What we win is going to be used to help other workers have better jobs too. And that that is a change. That is that is a change from, you know, union attitudes or, or at least some union attitudes in, in the 80s and 90s, where partly because they were so under attack, there was this sense of, okay, we're just going to take care of our own, as opposed to moving forward, organizing others and making sure that we have that everyone benefits from this kind of union contract. Yeah. And it seems like UPS itself may be seeing some benefits to this agreement already, given the tight labor market. Um, according to Bloomberg, searches with UPS or United Parcel Service and the job title increased by more than 50% on Indeed's online job board. 
during the week after the tentative agreement was announced. So I think, you know, that's also just a meaningful way of showing it. doing good by workers, you know, reaching agreements like this can really have a positive impact on employers as well. That's a, that's a really good point. And, and there's a lot of research showing there's so much reduced turnover, higher productivity when you have workers who feel like they have a good job and who feel like their, you know, their employer cares about them. Yeah, it, it helps with recruiting and, and it helps with retention, which is, which is invaluable for an employer. Yeah, I think just in August here, we had a report from Treasury that basically said unionization is good for the economy. Can you tell us a little bit more about Treasury's report and how that's meaningful? I mean, it's just a, such a fascinating moment. You know, some of my research talks about the Keynesian economic consensus that helped drive the enactment of the National Labor Relations Act during the New Deal. And, and studying changing economic ideology, you could call it, or, you know, or changing economic science, changing economic theories is really fascinating. I, I, I don't know about you. I took Econ 101 in the, in the 2000s, and there I was told that, you know, unions are just bad for the economy and unions are just bad for workers. And it wasn't presented as a political view. It was presented as very much just, this is what we know. Here's the supply curve. Here's it's the just fact, curve. but it's just fact. And so partly for me, studying the history of the National Labor Relations Act and realizing that there was a time when unions were understood as good for the economy was really a, a revelation to someone who, you know, again, this was presented as just everyone knows this. We all know it. It's just it's just the reality. And so, uh, you know, there is that I think rediscovering that history and seeing the pendulum swing from well, so, you know, we had the Keynesian view and then we had kind of the, the more neoclassical, neoliberal view that unions are essentially legalized monopolies that that at most could benefit some union workers, but it's at the expense of all other workers and the growth of the economy. So today where there's, you know, again, a new moment in, in economics and I think a renewed focus on macroeconomics and really studying labor as a part of a functioning economy. And again, the Keynesian view was always like workers are consumers. You know, I mean, this was the Fordist view. Workers are consumers. And if we don't have a reasonable distribution of wealth throughout the populace, then people aren't going to be able to buy things. And you can't have an economy without that. So it's 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 a really meaningful moment. And, you know, the Biden presidency is, has been interesting. We bo both have from, from Biden himself, some of the most pro-union statements of any modern president and, you know, in recent memory. And in addition, a change in how the leading economists within that administration are thinking. And this is a big change even from under President Obama. So I, I think, you know, in, in real time, we're seeing a real political shift and it's, it's exciting. Yeah, I think it's interesting because for some time, I think we've seen labor economists who are doing research that, you know, just to show data reflects all of the benefits that unions can have for the economy and, you know, do have both for unionized workers and non-unionized workers. But to see it coming out of the Biden administration is just an interesting shift. And I think we've seen a couple of other exciting updates on the federal level with the National Labor Relations Board releasing a couple of important decisions this month. Uh, could you tell us more about those decisions? Sure. I mean, the absolutely most important one is just from last week, I believe. But, you know, reviving parts of an old standard 
for what you do when an employer commits an unfair labor practice in the run up to a union election. So, you know, unions, union membership has been declining for decades. There's a, you know, there's an exhaustive body of research that tries to explain why that is. There are many reasons, but across the board, it seems like one significant reason is increased employer resistance to unionization. And partly that is a cultural problem and that it was considered that for a long time, the public wasn't concerned or wasn't paying attention. And so, you know, employer, employer resistance to unionization didn't spur public outrage in the way that it did before and the way that I think it does now, or that it's it's on the way to doing now. Partly it's a problem of, of legal remedies. The NLRB, the remedies under federal labor law are fairly weak. If a, an employer fires a union organizer in the run-up to an election, maybe you can, through a complicated legal process, you can get that person rehired and give them back pay. But I mean, you would have had to pay them that anyway. Like it's, you know, maybe you can rerun the election again if you can prove this. But by the second election, a lot of the initial kind of momentum around unionization has dissipated. And so for the economically rational employer, there was an incentive to just violate labor law. And so what this does without increasing dramatically the remedial authority of, you know, of the board to provide punitive or compensatory damage or all these things that weren't that 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 weren't going to happen this just says okay if a union major if union has a majority of, of cards there the employer has two options it can recognize the union voluntarily or it can ask for an election if they ask for an election they need to follow labor law and if they do not follow labor law if there is a proven unfair labor practice in that period then there's going to be a bargaining order saying that the the employer has to has to recognize the union and 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 bargain with it and that's that really reduces the incentives to engage in unfair labor practices yeah this decision seems meaningful you know instead of getting in a new election because of your unfair labor practice you now have to bargain just the recognition that an unfair labor practice in the past, even with a new election, you know, some of the effects of that might still linger, I think is important and, you know, hopefully going to allow more folks to organize when that's what their employees want to do. Absolutely. I mean, I think the question will be, do the courts uphold this, right? And that's where we get into the reality of what the federal courts look like today which is particularly at the level of the Supreme Court, not particularly labor friendly, to, to say the least. <laughs> that is the understatement of the century. It's the most incredible NLRB that I've seen in my lifetime in terms of its what it's proactively doing. You know, the big question is 2024, because what increasingly is happening is that the, the rules and standards adopted by one board are immediately changed by when we have a, a new party controlling the White House or changed by the next board. So 2024 could not be more important. So I want to ask the big question here. Does this hot labor summer mark a new period for the U.S. labor movement? I hope so. But I think it, as I said before, I think it's a turning point. And the question really is what happens next? So we have the highest level of public support for labor unions in, in 60 years. But 60 years ago, that was a very different quality of public support because a substantial proportion of those folks of the public were themselves unionized. So right now we have a lot of folks who like unions, but aren't in unions, don't have experience with unions. 
And I mean, if you want to look at the Gallup polling language, I mean, the union supporters are thrilled by, as I think they should be, by by the levels of public support they reflect. According to those same polls, a majority of workers say they don't have any interest in unionizing. Now, I think there are reasons to question, you know, that kind of methodology as is not really reflecting what a union organizing drive looks like. There's a lot of other studies that show that workers have interest in, you know, real. I mean, they have interest in better jobs. They have interest in in some form of collective power and in some form of voice. But also, you know, the experience of being asked, do you want a union is very different than the experience of, you know, being part of a union organizing drive. At the same time, I think it's important to take that kind of data seriously. You know, these are workers, most workers have no experience with unions for all the the kind of, you know, good media attention they're getting right now. There's also a ton of scare tactics that continue. And, and I think the other issue is, you know, being a part of a union on the job is it's a really diff- really different experience of being employed and i think what will the reality of what unionization is for workers who are new to it, it it's it's incredible in some ways and it's also frustrating in some ways and so i think you know i was a union organizer before i before i went to law school and and they were you know, there are two principles that I that I really took away from that. One is the importance of of showing what's possible, right? And so then that's doing the like, you know, that's sharing the good news, right? That's t- that's doing what we're doing here. That's talking about the successful strikes, the successful threat of strikes, the fantastic contracts, the making workers understand what's possible. It's also something called inoculation, which is preparing folks for the difficulties ahead. So there's this burst of energy and enthusiasm. It has to be made real. It has to be made real with having more workers in unions. It has to be made real through through legal changes, because notwithstanding everything that the board is doing, you know, labor law is broken. And I think there's there's no doubt about that. And we have a really hostile Supreme Court at the same time. So and, you know, this enthusiasm needs to be made real through kind of clear political realignments and the maintenance of political power. So so what's next? I I don't know. I am I am cautiously optimistic, but again, it's going to be what comes next is the big question. Does all this, you know, is this a moment or a movement? Is this does all of this enthusiasm result in the institutional, cultural, political changes that that center quality jobs as a part of, you know, the American dream and the realities of unionization and does it naturalize kind of the role of unionization because it's it takes work and it takes it takes work to create a union and to maintain a union but I think what we're learning increasingly is that it's worth it it's worth it for workers it's worth it for employers it's worth it for the public but we, we still have to get there so that's my attempt to inoculate to say it's it's it's, it's not easy, but it's worth it. For those that are interested in these labor movements and workers' rights, where can they learn more? Well, first, I'm delighted. That's fantastic for those who are. I love On Labor, the newsletter, the email that comes out of a Harvard Center for Work. It keeps you updated on both legal developments in the world of labor law and also, you know, big strikes, other big things that are happening. There are podcasts. I'm embarrassed to admit I am not a regular podcast listener. Don't be mad at me. But, so I think there's Belabored with Sarah Jaffe that, that folks really like. There's a, there's Working People by Maximilian Alvarez, who is a fantastic kind of visionary labor supporter. 
Increasingly, a lot of our media outlets have have labor reporters. That's a big change. There were labor reporters historically, and then there was a move away from them, which also, which at least correlated in time with there being a significant reduction in coverage of what's happening for workers. And I think a change in tone of how it's covered with more labor reporters at Politico, at HuffPo, all of those places you see greater attention to working people issues and what's happening on the job, to strikes, to collective action, to legal changes, but also I think a broader perspective. If you look at coverage of strikes historically and even today, it's not always been the most worker friendly. It often really emphasizes this could cost $5 billion to the economy, which I think is what they're saying with with some of the strikes that are potentially at issue this year. And what they don't say is, again, consistent with the Treasury report, right? What is the cost of bad jobs? What is the cost of that? When there is the potential railroad strike, what is the cost of no sick leave or, or insufficient sick leave? What is the cost of workers coming to work sick? You know, in a time of uh, where we're still dealing with the fallout of a massive pandemic, those, those costs should be more apparent than ever. And yet for a long time, that piece of the story wasn't told. So that is just to say... When folks are looking for additional information, pay attention to to which perspectives are being told. There's costs and benefits to everything. And I think increasingly we're recognizing that the benefits of unionization outweigh the costs. And if you're looking at something that's only focusing on the cost, then it's important to say, like, what, what part of the story isn't being told here? Also, for those folks who are going to law school or who, who are alumni of, of, of law schools, you can check in and see, does your law school have a tenure track person teaching labor law? For part of the kind of, you know, neoliberal consensus was a, a consensus in law schools that labor law was no longer important. And so many, you know, among the top, the top law schools, Yale and Stanford, both don't have a tenure track person teaching labor law. Labor law is important. And what law schools teach is important in shaping law students and then the practitioners of law understanding of, of, of what matters in the world. So email your deans and, and encourage them to, to take seriously this moment. Well, Diana, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. It was a pleasure having you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to our listeners for finding Broken Law. Summer is a great time to catch up on any episodes that you might have missed. You can find our podcast episodes wherever you're listening to this one. If you're enjoying Broken Law, help us bring the show to more listeners by recommending it to a friend and leaving us a review. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves and whose it does not. <laughs>